Welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar. I'm Ian Welch and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. We're going to be looking at remote sensing innovations for net zero and nature positive supply chains. Certainly for companies working towards their net zero and nature positive commitments, the, the need for clear and reliable intelligence on natural capital is vital. And innovation and innovative remote sensing solutions can be an important enabler uh, for improving business decisions for sure. We have an expert panel assembled to discuss this. We have Andrew Wilcox, Senior Manager for Sustainable Sourcing and Digital Programs at Unilever. We have Rob Emanuel, who's Geospatial Architect at Microsoft. We have Anita Neville, Chief Sustainability and Communications Officer at Golden Agri-Resources. And Alessandro Pacini, Co-Founder and CSO at Chloris Geospatial. And our thanks to Chloris Geospatial for supporting this webinar and helping to bring our panel together. Thank you also to Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson for our organisation and tech hosting today, and also uh, Innovation Forum's Diana Kim. Thank you to you all. Um, and the conversations we're having today are in advance of Innovation Forum's Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference next week in Amsterdam. And if you want to join us, there are still places available. OK, um, I'll turn to our panel shortly, but we do want to hear from you all. Um, we have over 200 people on the call now, which is great. Please be thinking about your points and questions that you want to put to our panel and put them in the Q&A box on your screen. And you can like others' questions, and the more likes a question gets, it goes up, the, goes up the screen, and the more likes there are, the greater the chances that I will put it to our panel. Okay, let's get cracking. Anita, welcome. Um, perhaps you can go first. Give us a very quick bit of context setting for uh, Golden Agri Resources, but then please comment on what GAR looks for from remote sensing solutions and how you're using them to deliver on your net zero and nature positive commitments. Anita. Thanks, Ian. It's so nice to be back part of the Innovation Forum family and on a webinar, it feels, I'm feeling very rusty. So hopefully give you good value this evening. So for those of you who don't know us, Golden Agri Resources is the second largest uh, palm oil company in the world. We have just over half a million hectares of palm plantations that we own and manage ourselves in Indonesia. But around 60%, 50 to 60% of the oil that we trade uh, through our refineries comes from third-party suppliers. So for a long time now, we've been looking at what kinds of ag tech solutions are available to help our business make uh, better and faster decisions, particularly in the areas of land use management. And I think what we've seen in the last sort of two decades is the rapid acceleration in the development of satellite technologies that have helped us to you know, really understand uh, land changes, changes in the landscape much better. And you're seeing those that have traditionally, these sorts of services uh, that have traditionally perhaps been used by governments or you know, organisations like NASA, um, have become much more accessible to individual agribusinesses of a range of different shapes and sizes, including those with the kind of sizable footprint like GAR. And this has enabled us to see more across our supply chain, to see changes faster and therefore be able to respond to them faster, whether those are you know, deforestation events as a result of agricultural expansion or loss of forest as a result of fire. And we're also able to see those at increasingly high level of resolution and at lower cost. So it's been fundamentally important for companies like GAR to be able to utilize this technology to help reduce the cost of having to go and ground truth every single alert that we get 
across our system around deforestation or fire events. But there is a limit to what satellite technology has been able to tell us up until now. Um, so it, conventional systems are really focused on loss and less on the question of, well, what are we gaining? So GAR as part of its GAR social and environmental policy issued in 2015, and even before that with our forest conservation policy in 2011, made commitments to set aside HCB and high carbon stock areas of forests as part of our commitment to no deforestation, no peat, no exploitation. And we've used satellite technology thus far to tell us, you know, where that land is and, and to make sure that, that, um, that the areas that we've set aside are protected. But what we haven't been able to see from the sky until we started collaborating with Chloris is really what gains are we making in these areas? And, and as a sustainability, chief sustainability officer, the fundamental question I have around the 79,000 hectares of forest that we've set aside for conservation is, are we maintaining or even improving on the natural values that we've set those forests aside for? And if not, how do we make sure that we're acting on that fast enough? So this is going to be fundamentally important, understanding the values that are being maintained or in, even gained within forest areas is going to be a fundamentally important part of you know, being able to make those sort of carbon claims. And particularly, I think, for community-based projects, we have commitments to around 44,000 hectares of forests as part of community um, conservation planning commitments that we have across Indonesia. And if we want to be able to connect those hectares to carbon or other ecosystem services payments, we have to be able to demonstrate the values are still within those forests. So we've worked with Chloris in uh, three sites in Semitau in a rough resolution project, um, but it's already uh, generated for us some really interesting insights around carbon stock before palm was started uh, versus where it is now. You know, one of the interesting things out of that was to see that actually carbon stock before palm was in a particular area was lower than it is now. That was one example. Not all examples look like that. Um, positive impact of conservation areas and and looking at what is the annual change that can happen within carbon and biomass. And these are essential pieces of data for an agribusiness like ours that's thinking about our next steps in terms of the potential for carbon credits, but particularly those kinds of carbon and ecosystem services payments that will enable forest communities to still earn a livelihood whilst leaving forest standing. So I'll stop there for now, Ian. Thanks, Nita. So tell me, what, are you, what was the uh, thing that surprised you most when you got the information back from Cloris? Um, So I think, you know, talking to the team was looking at how things varied and actually where you saw gains that perhaps you weren't expecting. Um, so we did it, as I said, it was a, a relatively, and Alessandra can speak more to this perhaps, um, it was, a, as I understand it, a relatively rough resolution, but we're now looking off the back of that trial uh, to look at how we can do some much higher resolution um, uh, spots in our uh, estate to see if we can actually use the technology to do an annual biomass carbon change monitoring 
and reporting that would then be part of our feeding into, say, carbon standards like, you know, um, the gold standard or VERA. So, like, how we use that as part of our evidence point. But it's really looking at where is the variability and what triggers that change as well. Is it fire? Is it a deforestation event? Is it weather-related? You know, what is it that's happening in the, the, the land that triggers that change? And when you're just looking for forest loss or land use change, you're not necessarily looking at the quality of those forests. And I think this gave us a, a different and better sense of you know, the values that are sitting in those particular areas where we trial the technology. Quite interesting. Sure. Well, thank you very much indeed. Andrew, let me turn to you. Um, I wonder if you can perhaps build on what Anita's uh, said in our comments and, and give us some insight into the sorts of data and innovation that uh, Unilever needs and why, and how this is driving progress. And audience, I should say, unfortunately, Andrew needs to, uh, will be leaving the call at half past the hour. So if you have any questions or points you want to put to Andrew specifically, uh, please do get them in, in uh, shortly so that we can put them to Andrew before he uh, yeah, drop off the call. Anyway, Andrew, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Uh, and thanks, uh, obviously, to Innovation Forum for hosting and, and to my esteemed uh, fellow panelists here. Uh, it's an honor to be on this group. And Anita, that's a great uh, a great kickoff that you gave us here. Um, so for those that don't know Unilever, uh, we're a global consumer goods company with 400 brands uh, across different categories. Uh, so either Dove soaps and Magnum ice creams and, and so on. Uh, they're used by 2 billion people a day. Uh, and obviously to provision uh, provision consumers with these products on a day-to-day -day basis. We have a supply chain that touches down in, in many of these key commodities linked to forest health and forest carbon, like palm oil and soybeans, uh, wood packaging and cocoa. Um, and that supply chain sprawls over several million hectares of land with millions of farmers on it. Uh, so the need for scale is, is so obvious, it practically goes without saying, but of course I'm, I'm framing uh, how, how we're thinking about remote sensing here. Uh, and remote sensing is, is one of those obvious um, gap-closing technologies for scale. Um, and so today I was going to talk a little bit about, I think, what Unilever needs, uh, and, and I think what the private sector and consumer goods uh, sector more broadly need to do to really avail uh, this technology as it, as it evolves so rapidly. Uh, and then a few things that actually are needed from the ecosystem itself. So the chloruses of the world uh, and the broader ecosystem of uh, satellite data generation and, and other forms of remote sensing, drones and, and so on, uh, and the downstream analytics that are produced. Uh, and then I wanted to just pull it together with something that we kind of all need to do to make the most of this technology. Um, so first and foremost, uh, we need to align the technology and the data to our purpose and our programs. Uh, so at Unilever, we have a commitment for a deforestation-free supply chain, uh, also a commitment to protect and restore 1.5 million hectares. Uh, and also we need greater traceability transparency in the supply chain uh, so that we can work with suppliers and focus our sourcing uh, with those that share that ambition to empower, uh, empower smallholder farmers and, and protect nature. Uh, and I think this is kind of what Anita was getting at, is this technology could be so powerful for going from commitments into impact and, and the values that are preserved and restored uh, by way of these programs and these actions. Um, so the, the second piece is also remote sensing is wonderful, uh, but it really needs to pair with other sustainability technology. Um, so looking at uh, different ways to achieve traceability, you know, 
geolocation, blockchain, we've been looking at crowdsourcing, and really what we're trying to do is bring it all together into a coherent stack. Uh, and then finally, uh, speaking as a consumer goods company, we need to understand and leverage our place in the value chain uh, and understand that it, it's about working with a constellation of partners uh, that are supplying you with materials, their suppliers, uh, and then obviously downstream retail and distribution. Uh, and that point is actually what segues into what we really need from the ecosystem, uh, because ultimately this isn't bilateral. It really needs to be multipolar, multilateral. It needs an ecosystem, uh, not a simple, uh, simple partnership or arrangement like that. Um, and so there's three things that we really do need from the ecosystem, uh, which are one is about accuracy. Uh, the other is about interoperability. And then the third is about creative new business models. Uh, so on the accuracy point, we really need reliable, uh, transparently documented benchmarks for, for quality and accuracy. Uh, this is where Unilever has been uh, supporting an initiative called the Forest Data Partnership, uh, which is led by the World Resources Institute, Food and Agriculture Organization, and the U.S. Uh, NASA. Um, and it's an effort to basically put in place uh, validation pathways around, around key forest data. Uh, on the interoperability piece, uh, I think there's two chunks to it. Uh, one is about the impacts themselves. Uh, so if we really want to say something about uh, using remote sensing, the, the impacts in forests and other ecosystems, we need a common language uh, for that impact and for how to convey that impact, uh, and also a common language of place. Uh, so we need to be able to be talking about the same mills and the same refineries and the same terminals and, and all those sorts of things in, in order to meaningfully link impact to place. Uh, and then the last piece is, is probably the most challenging and, and most uh, promising in my view, which is the new business models. How are we gonna, how are we gonna provision a marketplace with data out of this ecosystem? Uh, and so finally, the thing that we all have to do together is I think all the people in this room love the technology, uh, love the potential, uh, but it also can be very dense and highly, highly technical. And so the thing that we really need to think about together uh, is how do we be inclusive of the diversity of the stakeholders uh, that are involved in these value chains? How do we make the tech explainable and relevant to their day-to-day -day problems? Uh, so with that, uh, I'll hand it back to you, Ian, and uh, yeah. Thanks very much, Andrew. Um, in terms of internal conversations, I mean, I, I imagine that um, there must be some degree of trepidation that you're going to uncover endless problems when you go down the route of using remote sensing. You could have, you know, gosh, what are we going to find? How do you get around that internally? Is it a question, well, you know, we, we, these problems are there, so we just have to go and find them, or we have to be aware of them. Is that the sort of conversation you have? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And uh, I remember a few years back, we were talking about a laser in, on the space station that could measure trees, uh, and that was an interesting internal conversation. Uh, and it's also a critical instrument for measuring forest carbon and structure. And, and I'm sure Alessandro will, will touch on this, the global ecosystem dynamics investigation. But yes, Ian, uh, your point is, is, is very uh, appropriate. Um, once you have a better understanding of carbon and forest, there's a possibility that your overall footprint could go very well go up, your emissions footprint. Um, and I think as a company, you know, there's a commitment to know and a commitment to understand our impact, even if that better understanding makes us feel like we slid backwards because we got better accuracy uh, in the short term. Sure. Okay, thank you. Uh, one quick question. There's a question for you to 
specifically, you talked about inclusivity. Could you just very quickly define what you mean by inclusivity? Yeah, I, I mean, to frame it in very technical terms, like we'll be using very complex, deep neural networks that are using, you know, multidimensional data cubes to generate an insight about a forest. But ultimately, we need to go land that with groups of smallholders, with producer companies. Uh, and if we just go to them and say, well, the, the model told us uh, that's not going to work. So inclusivity is a huge concept and, of course, critical to how, how we operate. But I was talking about a very specific kind of technical version of inclusivity. Okay, no, thank you very much, Deed. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, uh, Rob, perhaps you can give some insight into what Microsoft is doing in, in this area and, and what are the challenges that you're working on addressing? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me in this panel. Uh, my name is Rob Emanuel. I'm the head of engineering for um, a project at Microsoft called uh, Planetary Computer. And so I'm part of the environmental sustainability team here at Microsoft. Um, Microsoft's made uh, some ambitious commitments around sustainability, being carbon negative, water positive, zero waste, and to protect ecosystems. Uh, and to, to face those challenges, uh, it requires a lot of data. And uh, you know we understand that a lot of the applicable data that's required and and sort of you can't get any other way is is um, you know geospatial and spatiotemporal and taken from space or taken from climate model outputs, all of this uh, all of this rich data that describes space and time, either historical or projected. Um, and there's a lot of free and open data sets out there that can that can help. Uh, so the project that I'm on planetary computer um, is a geospatial data platform that targets uh, that free and open data um, around uh, environmental sustainability. So we have we host over 50 petabytes of data, uh, over 85 data sources um, in our uh, catalog uh, offered freely for uh, users on Azure um, and provide APIs for search and discovery. Um, and we're aiming to make uh, spatial temporal data generally um, really easy to work with uh, because at Microsoft we're we're aiming our technologies at um, sustainability for our own use cases right to meet those goals that, that I talked about um, but also for our our customers and our partners right we want to um, use the the technology that we're developing at Microsoft to, to uh, you know and aim and add sustainability use cases um, but we can't you know, do it alone. We understand that it's, it's that there's not going to be one solution, right? This, um, you know, includes uh, participating in and being a member of the open communities around this, right? Um, the producers of open data sets, uh, the um, creators of open source and open standards. That's why we uh, have a lot of uh, support of the open source ecosystem around this this work um, and and uh, rely on. Uh, open standards for to um, ensure interoperability, uh, but also commercial providers are are part of this, and um, you know organizations like Chloris are producing these uh, really amazing uh, scientific data sets uh, that need to be you know accessed and easily used by by users. So we host a bi uh, biomass layer from them. Um, we also work with others uh, like Impact Observatory to have an annual uh, land use land cover 
um, data for that's you know applicable to land management at a higher uh, high resolution. And yeah, I think that uh, the purpose of this is to really bring uh, bring data together so that we can move along the spectrum from these you know interesting remote sensing raw data sets to to insights, right? And so there was a um, you know something about like you know what changed, right? Uh, is there was it a fire or was it flood or something changed the biomass over an area? Um, that question needs to bring in additional data that can be fused together and understood in context, right? And so, uh, you know, the platform we're building is is trying to to solve this. And um, yeah, high quality data is is great, but um, really, how do how do users integrate and access this? And you know, as Andrew said, uh, there's uh, a need to go beyond the tech and the remote sensing aspect of it because remote sensing is a part of this and we see planetary computers a part of this like data ecosystem. Um, but remote sensing and geospatial, you know, is, is hard to understand, uh, can, can be difficult to work with. You know, how do we provide those insights to uh, people who are, uh, don't want to understand the geospatial aspect, they just want the, the information and integrate into um, larger sustainability systems. So Microsoft has, a large suite of uh, products that that um, you know we're looking to integrate into uh, cloud for sustainability uh, is is one of them. I mean, all the way to you know how do we get uh, this this data in an Excel spreadsheet for somebody who's doing uh, analysis and, and making charts, right? So um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll end with that. Thanks, thanks, Rob. I made an interesting point around. Uh, interoperability is what you need to say. Um, what are the challenges there? I mean, what it, how do you marry together bits of data and bits types of data that perhaps weren't working together? What are the kind of, what are the, the keys to making that work? Um, yeah, it's a challenge, especially in like the geospatial data domain where everything is, uh, or it, it tends to be a lot of um, varying formats that are not necessarily uh, optimized for cloud access. So um, our uh, approach there is to make sure that all the uh, files that we host are cloud optimized in open standard formats that are easy for the open source ecosystem of tools to read in and then to extract metadata uh, to be able to describe what is the place, what is the time, what are the properties of this data in a standard way. So we use the spatiotemporal asset catalog standard to catalog our data sets. And by, by being able to describe the data in a standards-based way, it enables the downstream tooling to know what to do with it and how to fuse it and how to combine things. So we're never gonna get all of the world's data, you know, 50 petabytes in exactly the same format, right? But at least we can uh, empower uh, users to with tools that can uh, you know, transform things and fuse together data um, when they need it. Okay, thanks very much, Rob. Alessandro, uh, let me turn to you. Thank you for your patience. Perhaps you can reflect a little bit on what you've heard from the panel already and give us a bit of detail on Chloris geospatial approach. Well, first of all, uh, thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me uh, and thank you for the nice world, words. Um, so my, my name is Alessandro Baccini. I'm the CSO at Chloris. And um, I, I come from, from, from science, so I spent uh, the past 20 years actually in the science space trying to address this question on how we improve the global 
carbon cycle? What are the data that, that are missing to do a better job in um, quantifying the balance of the global carbon cycle? And, and I'm very pleased to hear that some of those questions are actually very much uh, um, sort of the same uh, also in the corporate world. And, and, uh, and uh, that's, that's why uh, with Chloris, what we are trying to do, uh, we are trying to fill the gaps in terms of um, information that describe the amount of carbon and emissions that are um, resulting from land cover and land use change. Uh, we are a new company. And as Anita just, just mentioned, if you can look um, not only to deforestation or forest area, but you can look and start to uh, query uh, the amount of carbon that is stored in the vegetation over time, uh, you will discover some new insights, some information that at Chloris, um, at least we think and we like to think that is the information that you need to have a comprehensive, uh, transparent view of uh, the impact of your project. And, and this for us, Chloris, is in essence is the ability to quantify um, changes in carbon density, not only resulting from deforestation, but uh, also from any type of disturbances and as well as gain. So if we have a forest that is growing, that forest is removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And it is important to be able to prove and to quantify the degree of success of this process. So I, I think uh, um, uh, we have a few slides. If Diana can bring, bring, the, bring them up, I would love to uh, briefly show sort of what uh, our uh, product really is so the next slide so our technology is based on a global up, up, uh, approach we are using a sort of a, a methodology that works from local scale to the global scale uh, using uh, lidar information from from space combined with image data from multiple different sensors and uh, through machine learning, we are able to generate annual estimate of carbon density and as well as annual estimate of change. Um, so by doing this, then we are trying to offer this, this information in our new platform. Uh, next, next slide. And uh, in the platform that uh, we, uh, we have been building, in essence, uh, the customer can um, have access to the list of the project on the left with some basic uh, statistics about the, the performance of the project, with the amount of, of the stock of carbon at the beginning of the period, at the end of, of the period, the average biomass. And then, and then what we think is the most important is actually the net change. It is the net change that is really giving you this comprehensive view of what is the impact, because is the project actually a sink or a source for the atmosphere and how it is changing over time. And then more on the right side of the, of, of the, of the platform, you can have access to figures describing the trend 
the uncertainty on the estimate is a, a sort of gray envelope um, behind the blue line is uh, sort of the degree of, of uncertainty on the estimate. And um, on the bottom right, you can actually have this uh, visual representation of the data. Uh, those are specially explicit inf information, meaning that their maps cont continues in space and, and time. And so people can have uh, a better understanding of where things are happening within the project, within the country, and so on. So it is through this type of, of information that we think that, um, uh, or we hope to help, uh, you know, Anita, Andrew, uh, in, in this case, with information that uh, are difficult to, uh, to find and are difficult to actually generate in a cost-effective uh, manner. Uh, the key here is that we want to have a system that is uh, uh, fast, meaning that we don't want customer to wait for six months or eight months to have an answer. We are able to process this type of information in a few hours. And, um, and it is um, information that is consistent, especially meaning that you can compare project uh, in Indonesia with projects in Africa or, or in South America, um, and uh, that they are cost-effective because at the end of the day, what we want is that we want the most of the uh, financial resources are going to stay in the field, are going to stay in the community that actually are on the ground li living and working in um in this uh, location. And so we think that the cost of MRV should be as small as possible. And our uh, view on this is that the only way to achieve this is actually to leverage this amazing information that you can get from, uh, from satellite ob observation. Um, so that's, uh, in essence, uh, what, what we are trying to do. Okay. Uh Oh, have we lost uh, Rob? Okay, hopefully Rob will rejoin us. Um, Alessandro, thank you very much indeed. Let me turn to some of the questions we've got. Thank you so much for uh, all your questions. They're coming in thick and fast. And I see that Anita's already been answering them um, over the course of the last few minutes as well. But thank you. And um, we turn to some of them that, that have been answered uh, just to kind of widen out the conversation. But let me turn to you, Alessandro, quickly. I have a question asking specifically, what are the characteristics um, or attributes that the technology measures to indicate the degrees of forest health. So just perhaps a little bit more information about specifically what you're measuring. So what we are really measuring, if you think about what biomass is, is we are trying to weight the trees from space, right? So if you look at what the biomass is, biomass is a weight per unit area. And, and so what you really need to know is how much mass, how, how heavy uh, the, the vegetation is. And then from there, you can derive how much carbon is inside it. So what we are trying to, to, to measure with this technology is the amount of carbon that is stored in the vegetation and how this is changing over time. And the biggest difference I think that we bring in, uh, in, in this space is that um, contrary to the standard approach that is based on the ability to quantify forest area change, right? We decided to not do that. We decided to skip that step 
where you have to uh, quantify the number of hectares, the number of acres that have been lost. And we directly measure the dynamic, the trend of the biomass density at each location, in this case, at each sort of uh, 30 meters by 30 meters little square. Um, that is the resolution of the data that we are using at this time. Uh, we are do actually working with a, a private uh, satellite company to improve uh, the resolution all the way to five meters. Um, but for now, what, what we can do at operational scale is uh, 30 meters. And, and so that, in, in essence, is what we measure. We, we measure the density, the biomass density in the vegetation. And this is, uh, those are measurements that are not constrained by the definition of forest because we don't use the land cover and land use as an input in, in the methodology. Um, and so allow us to provide uh, estimate of any type of above ground woody vegetation. So it's not constrained only to forests. And this is very important when there are projects of reforestation or, or project where a degraded forest is um, in the process of recovering. And so you can actually quantify then the improvement, the gain in terms of how much biomass is growing back in, uh, in, um, in those projects. Thank I hope you. I, um, I answered the question. No, no thank you. Um, I've conscious we've lost Rob. We knew Andrew was going to drop off, but we've lost Rob as well. So I hope uh, Anita and Alessandro, you're ready to answer a lot of questions because we do have a lot of questions coming in. Um, I want to turn to my question. Anita, I know you've answered this on the Q&A, but I just wanted maybe just have a quick chat about it. You, you mentioned in your remarks about the limitations of using satellite technology and satellite imagery. Can you give a bit more about what you mean by the limitations and, and, and uh, you know, what the challenges are there? Sure. I mean, I think we need to be really um, mindful of the fact that technology can only do certain things for us and we still need to interpret results that we're getting. So the classic thing for me is uh, we have satellite monitoring of all of our own plantations and third-party supply chain and we get lots of alerts around land cover change that could be a deforestation event or a fire event, a hotspot. And so what a satellite will tell you is where to look. And because the satellite technology and imagery has improved so much over you know, the last two decades or so, um, you can see more frequently areas faster. So this is enabling us to respond to those. But what it won't tell you, the satellite image is never gonna tell you who is responsible for that deforestation alert or that fire. And why did they do it? And so it's essential that we still have ground truthing teams and that we still have in-field support who can go and ask those questions, right? Um, it, at GAR, we talk about it as using tech with a human heart because in and of itself, all it's telling you is where to look, right? And, and it enables you to, instead of having to have eyes everywhere all at once humanized, we're using satellites to do that component, but you still have to deploy people on the ground to find out what is the driver because ultimately the satellite technology information that we're getting, the imagery that we're getting is really only answering the where question. 
And then it's up to human beings and the decisions we make and the other things that we put around to be able to drive the change of behavior so that that deforestation alert doesn't happen again, right? So it tells us the where, it doesn't tell us the why or the who necessarily, and it doesn't also answer how do we prevent it from happening again. What we're talking about here with remote sensing is about giving us a deeper sense of the value of that vegetation from a carbon or biomass perspective that could help inform other decisions that we want to take uh, in terms of what that forest is useful for or, or that piece of vegetation. You know, we're looking at areas that are covered in palm and some people may think, well, what's the good of that? But, you know, palm is a tree that's in the environment for 25 to 30 years in, in its productive life. And in that period, it plays an important role in terms of, you know, its biomass capacity, its carbon capacity, and it's useful for us to understand what that dynamic is in the environment. But that's what I was talking about. Thank you. Thanks, Anita. Um, question, uh, Alexandra, I want to put to you is um, a few questions asking around the use of on-the-ground um, investigation combined with uh, using remote sensing, um, and specifically around carbon in soils. Um, do you, Alessandro, use uh, soil sampling combined with the remote sensing to measure or to check carbon stocks? How do, you, how do the two work together? That's a good question. At this time, we are actually focusing only on the above ground component of the biomass. We are not really looking at soil. Um, carbon uh, this is something that uh, is is in the plan and and, and is coming and for soil uh, field information are even more important because there is really no sensor that can tell you how much carbon is stored uh, below ground in the soil and and so there are a uh, few techniques that you, you can use to do that. But uh, yes, uh, the ability to work with field sample for the soil is, is very, very important, as is always important to have a check on the ground. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, looking at target from space, uh, you can be very accurate, but uh, you always want to, to compare with, uh, with what, what it is on the ground. So. Uh, field data is still very important. Sure. Okay, thanks, Alessandro. Uh, Anita, question uh, we've got specifically for you, uh, and it's about looking back into the past. How much do you weigh net loss from establishment of plantations that are existing versus net gain from protected assets? How, how do you how do you include that in your in your thinking and when you're looking at overall impacts? So. Um, Looking at the historic development of palm plantations is an important component of how we assess our overall journey to one and a half degree pathway. So remote sensing doesn't negate the need to look at what happened before. And then we look at and calculate historic land use change as part of setting out, okay, what do we need to do uh, in terms of emissions reductions elsewhere to get us on that one and a half degree pathway, right? So it's not um, it's not as if we just look at the, the environment as it is now and ignore what happened before. We still have to make that calculation as part of our carbon reduction strategy and that those emissions have to be compensated for elsewhere. 
obviously, we're members of the RSPO, the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil. And so within that whole process, there is a remediation and compensation procedure where we have to account for um, our land use change uh, prior to 2005 um, and compensate for that at a hectare by hectare or hectare by two hectare basis, depending on the kind of land that was cleared. So we account for those separate to the remote sensing. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Um, no, more quick, quite a lot of questions. Oh, Rob, Hello. welcome back. Apologize um, for the no dropping. problem. Um, we're all aware of the irony of the Microsoft representative was computer yeah. crash rather than anything else. Um, but welcome back. Um, thanks so much indeed for coming back. Do appreciate it. Let me just uh, see. Uh, Rob, we've been talking about um, uh, in fact, a lot of questions asking about this now about um, the use of on the ground uh, measuring versus remote sensing. I wonder from Microsoft's perspective, how much do you, um, what's the need now for, for on, on the ground uh, verification of what you're finding? What, how do you, you know, how do you scale that? How do you ensure that you've got the right amount of on the ground on the ground measuring? And does it have to be done in by in person, or can we have is, a, is remote on the ground sensing something you can do as well? Yeah, I think that's a great question. The um, you know potential for uh, remote sensing uh, from space is is huge, but you can only get to a certain resolution. You can only see top down. Uh, you know, you, you need on the on the ground validation um, for certain use cases, right? If you're um, doing a monitoring use case where you want to detect some anomaly, uh, that's that's fine. But you have to uh, then you have to go inspect it, you know, um, uh, with folks on the ground. Uh, I think that the technology is still coming about to to be able to do that fusion of um, you know remotely sensed data. Uh, at various scales, right? So we have this lower resolution or even high resolution satellite um, data can't match, uh, you know, aerial or drone imagery, right? That can get a better view or an oblique view um, uh, versus, you know, street view imagery um, versus something that somebody can, you know, go to a location and write, write down, measure tree, you know, uh, tree trunk uh, with things like that. Um, so I think we're still we're still at a point uh, where combining all those seamlessly is is a is a goal, but we're we're getting there. Uh, and and I think that you know our approach of um, treating everything as spatiotemporal data uh, and and it's kind of starting there and using those open open data standards um, and uh, supporting the ecosystem of tools around fusing that data is is uh, you know sort of my team's approach. Um, however, I think there's still uh, a lot of manual processing going on where folks are going out with notepads and, and really, um, you know, getting uh, getting the on the ground read and feeding that up for a manual sort of uh, uh, conflation process. Thanks, Rob. Alessandro, quick question for you. Your, your technology and and your work, is it just for forests or are you looking at other biomes, grassland, pastureland, for example? So at this time, it's only for uh, woody vegetation, uh, meaning that it doesn't need to be forest. It could be shrubs or sort of uh, woodland, savanna, very, very small uh, ve vegetation, but that actually has a woody component. So when we are talking about 
grassland uh, at this time we we don't cover that uh, ecosystem it is it is possible to, uh, to do it but at, at, at this point we are, we are not focusing on it. so the the brazilian the cerrado for example by that that's one that's good cover. yes yes yeah uh, absolutely yeah okay um quick question uh where are we uh it was a question asking about um, a government, uh, working with government, and I'll send to you first, perhaps. Do you have any cases where you've been working with governments at a landscape or jurisdictional level to establish what's going on in a, to get the overall picture for that jurisdiction? And, and how, how does that work? And what, you know, what, 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 what work are you doing with, with government? Well, I, I have to say that at this time, we are not uh, um, really actively working with uh, a government. Uh, we are a very new company. We started about a, a year ago and we focus all our resources to generate this product. Um, I, I can, I might have in mind exactly how this could work in, in my past uh, job. I, I had the opportunity to work uh, with many government and provide this type of information from state level to sub-national level to the national scale. And, and this is exactly when remote sensing uh, provide the, I would say, the best uh, opportunity. Because, uh, you, you know, if you think about even just for the United States, that is probably the country with the most advanced uh, national forest inventory, it's extremely expensive and it takes a very long time to monitor the entire country. Um, uh, while if you uh, do um, put in place a methodology and a process that is heavily based on the remote sensing that we work with Acloris, you can generate those type of information annually in a very, very quick and cost-effective manner. Uh, we are looking forward to have the possibility to work with uh, some government. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for clearing it up. Um, I, Anita, I want to put a question to you. It's one that you have commented on already, but it's um, basically the question asking, how do you make sure you make the most of the um, of the, the potential from the these sort of techniques? How do you make sure you use it as, as, take it as far as you can? The question I talked about, you know, getting beyond the kind of bare minimum, but how do you ensure that you get the most out of all of this potential here? Oh, I, I, okay. So I think the question was really like, you know, are you just using this tool? And the, the short answer is no. Um, this is an additional tool in the toolbox, right? But you can't rely, um, remote sensing gives us new pieces of the jigsaw puzzle so that we can fill in more of the gaps. But you know, I, there are questions in there around how can this help you assess biodiversity? Well, you know, sometimes you have to do good old-fashioned field work. You have to have you know, boots on the ground. You have to have camera traps set and you have to do all of those things. This doesn't discount using this technology does not mean that you no longer have to take some of those actions. What it means is, I think, first of all, we can have a look at a broader area in a much more, Alessandro has said this multiple times tonight, um, a much more cost-effective way to look at a, a larger area of land. So from a scalability perspective, Andrew touched on this too, this technology is, is really important. 
And then it helps you by looking at this sort of larger space, identify where are the areas that you really want to hone in on and focus investment. And this is fundamentally important as we think about things like just transition, where all of the money that has been promised at COP26 and the many more dollars that will be promised, no doubt, at COP27 to protect forests and to help communities transition to you know, more forest-friendly practices, less invasive agriculture, all of those things. Like These sorts of technologies will help us determine where we should take immediate actions. It's not going to give us the whole picture. You have to use other things. Um, so we would use remote sensing alongside, you know, our traceability to plantation technology um, and capacity building partners, along with our existing satellite monitoring for deforestation and forest alerts. These are layers of information that also then need to be accompanied by ground teams. Thanks. Thank you very much, Anita. Anita. Um, question. We are hearing a lot about the growth of the carbon markets. Something that's been talked about um, a great, a great deal of talk about it in a lot of different places. But I'm wondering how, or this is a question asking, how you can link using remote sensing data to developing carbon credits. Um, Alessandro, perhaps you can start. How, how do you see uh, the use of your sort of technology to to uh, to develop carbon credits? I mean, it's it's a very complex process for sure. Uh, what I like to think is that uh, a key element is. Um, reliable and transparent information, information that actually has a quantified uh, accuracy so that the user can know the limitation of the information, uh, but also in, in information that is uh, simpler compared to what is required today. Um, and today, my, my impression is that the process, the way in which we derive this information is extremely complex for not an exact reason. And so uh, I think that our contribution is to provide a much more direct, quicker way to provide this type of, of information and in a way that is actually, you, you can scale it. If you think about the projection of the carbon market, um, in few years, you will need to be able to generate so much of this information that you need to be able to scale it. And, and I don't see personally a different way uh, that is not based on remote sensing te technology in order to be able to do that and to uh, provide uh, the demand uh, with the information that they, that they need. Thank you. Thanks, Alessandro. Rob, I want to put a question to you. Um, Data ownership, obviously a big issue. Uh, how about, to what extent do you see data ownership as a potential blocker to progress? Uh, and are there risks in data being owned by individual companies uh, and only being made available at, at cost or at profit? So what are the dangers there? We talked a lot about open source data, but also there's going to be data that's owned by uh, specific companies as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that um, the open data uh, that's available is rich but it's certainly limited in resolution. Uh, and there, there's commercial data sets that are gonna be required for specific use cases, right? Uh, you can only see so much at 10 meter resolution from like Sentinel-2 satellite imagery, for instance. Um, so what we need is for the data owners to, um, you know, release uh, data that 
<clears throat> is freely available in cases where it has high sustainability impact. Uh, an example of this is the Planet NICV data set um, where they release uh, mosaics over tropical areas um, uh, of their sort of medium resolution uh, imagery, um, but also to make the process of purchasing data simpler and more specific so that you don't need to bulk buy a bunch of cloudy satellite imagery uh, in order to, to sort of get your, your specific needs, right? It, um, and this is where the sort of tipping and queuing monitoring use case uh, comes in where you might be able to detect change in the open data sets uh, and then purchase uh, commercial data where change is detected to get a, the actual sort of like complete view of what's going on. And, uh, you know, to be able to do that specifically, um, uh, you know, can reduce costs uh, and, um, you know, incorporate commercial data uh, better for users that, that sort of aren't, aren't doing these sort of bulk purchases of data. But I think, I think it's going to require participation of data producing companies into the op open ecosystem in order to um, sort of empower those highest value use cases. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Rob. Um, quick question. Yes, I, Anita, you mentioned, you talked, you referenced Vera Gold Standard verification agencies. Do they accept remote, remote sensing data as verification or is, is on the ground uh, data still required? So to my understanding right now, you still need on the ground verification. So the question is, how might this technology, um, you know, Alessandro talked about it just now, we're going to need way more data and we're going to need many more of these projects and we're going to need to be able to demonstrate the carbon values of a range of things including to be able to access funds to support communities in order to prevent deforestation in the future and keep us on track for a one and a half degree future. So how might these technologies be incorporated into those systems is I think a critical question and one for the standard systems themselves. Ideally, we'd like to see them use these kinds of remote sensing technologies alongside then, you know, sampling or, or some other methodology to do some ground truthing. And I suspect that'll be the direction of travel. Thanks, Nita. Alessandro, how much do you agree with that? Uh, 100%, uh, uh, meaning that uh, right now the standard don't provide, don't support an algorithmic approach uh, for the measurements. But there is a very um, exciting com conversation going on on how authorities can change. Uh, at this time, uh, remote sensing based information can be used in the process mainly for stratification or for, or for sampling. Uh, that is already a step forward because you will decrease the cost and improve the accuracy by doing that. Um, but uh, yes, in the long term, I, I agree with Anita 100% that in order to be able to scale it, um, standard and methodology will have to up, update their, their expectations and their methodology. Uh, yeah. um, thank you, Alison. I've got one more question for you. And I want to put a final question to all the panel. I'm conscious that our time is nearly up. Um, how do you differentiate, uh, Alessandro, small annual increases in biomass that are occurring um, naturally versus ones that are uh, are perhaps man-made or, or an issue. How do you how how do you differentiate between the kind of natural variability and and potential more serious impacts? 
that is one of the toughest questions you could uh, ask me uh, because from remote sensing uh, is extremely difficult to see actually what is the driver right so what why do we see this increase as as anita was was saying you know why that loss happened why the deforestation happened who did it and and why and here is kind of the same type of question is we see uh what we see with our data is this increase in carbon density is this gain but then uh, why it is happening why it is happening at that rate uh you know we can infer some some information from the shape of the trajectory from the temporal information but uh, this is a case when you know remote sensing can help you to identify these very specific spots and then you need help from the field in the field from the communities in order to uh, exactly describe what the process is uh, right but already re remote sensing has this uh, powerful um, effect of focusing your view on a limited area and so limiting the need to have this huge sort of project and yeah. I guess it comes back to as Anita said it um can show you the where but not the why and I guess that just is the that's that is the that's the that's the issue okay um as I said conscious coming towards the end I want our panelists to reflect a little bit on the past hour and perhaps give us the, the two key things that they are taking away from from the session uh, Rob, I know you you, were, uh, you just dropped off for a little bit of it, but what are you taking away from, from today? What are the key things you think that we need to be t thinking about going forward? Yeah, I think that question of the, the why and the explainability of, of the information, you know, re remote sensing can only, um, in some cases, approximate. I mean, it's, it's true values, but actually the explainability is very important for that uh, sort of inclusive uh, work that that Andrew um, spoke about. Uh, so I think um, that sort of interoperability and explainability are, are two sort of key points that that I'm taking away. Uh, Anita, same question to you. What are you taking away? Uh, well, <laughs> the risk of this being a really boring reflection, interoperability, I think, you know, how data talks to data and being able to share data across different systems and with different users for different purposes is going to become increasingly important. It's definitely in my top three concerns at the moment uh, around data is interoperability, how we share it. And the second thing is data is great, but it's got to be relevant to a human being who's going to do something different on the ground. Uh, and so being able to translate it um, you know, I look at these graphs and systems. I have a lot of smart people in my team who explain these reports to me uh, very patiently. But then, you know, I'm speaking my first language. I'm relatively up to speed on some of these things. We've got to take that out into the field with people who don't necessarily have a university education. English isn't their first language. We have to make this stuff accessible. Otherwise, it's just data and it's not helping us live differently. Uh, so those two things, it's got to be explainable and meaningful to somebody so that they can do something you want them to. And it's got to work with other systems because remote sensing is not a silver bullet solution on its own. These things always have to work with something else. Thank you, Nita. Alessandro, same to you. And you can't use it, you can't see interoperability. 
um, my, I mean, what I hear is that, you know, and I 100% uh, um, uh, and I 100 agree on this, is that remote sensing is not the solution, only it's part of the solution. And, uh, and I think it's uh, then the, what comes after that is how we percolate this information at the different layers, at the different steps of this very complex process. Uh, to have a real impact on the environment in which we live, on the on the people who are on the ground, because at the end of the day, uh, I think the common goal here is to improve the environment and make make sure that we live in a better place. So, um, how can 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 we do that? It's not remote sensing uh, technique that would solve that, but uh, happy to be part of it. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we are going to have to draw things to a close. We have run out of time. So thank you so much to our panel for their time and insight today. Do head for Innovation Forum's website for more webinars, podcasts and insights, along with details of our upcoming Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities conference in Amsterdam next week. Anita's going to be there. Um, Alessandro's colleagues are going to be there. And the Innovation Forum team will all be there. And there are passes available if you'd like to join us. But for now, I hope you found this webinar useful. Thanks once again to Cloris for Geospatial. I've been Welsh. And goodbye.